you know, and I keep reminding people, I got addicted to a safe supply. Yeah. I got addicted to oxycodone. That was safe supply. Right. Right. Pristine pharmaceutical grade oxycodone. Right. Not addicted to that, you know, and I continued to buy it on the street. I was buying safe supply on the street, right. pristine pharmaceutical opioids. Right. So that whole notion to me is a bunch of BS because that's what began this whole crisis. People forget. I'm Flint Anderson, founder of Pain, parents and addicts in need. I've been in recovery since 2001, and there isn't much I don't know about recovery. And my mission is to constantly tell the truth about addiction, to make the realities of addiction, recovery, and drug culture known, and to drive awareness and advocate change that ultimately saves lives. And I'm Jason Lachance, a certified recovery coach with a passion for speaking with others and sharing their knowledge to help others seek recovery and maintain long-term sobriety. And this is the Don't Hide the Scars podcast, presented by Pain, parents and addicts in need. Thank you for listening to the Don't Hide the Scars podcast. If this is your first time, please hit that subscribe button. And if you are getting value out of the podcast, please share with others as we don't do any advertising in the podcast other than on our social media, Flint. Other than. So you all help us uh, continue to grow the podcast and we're seeing a nice uptick in listenership. So a big thank you to you. Uh, Flint Anderson, founder of Pain, myself, Jason Lachance. We are joined by our friend Tom Wolf, uh, fighting the good fight in San Francisco and really all, all over the nation, but but San Francisco for sure. Thanks for coming back on the podcast. Uh, it's great to be back, guys. It's really great to see you. So I'm happy to be here. Same here. How was your Thanksgiving? Oh, it was good. You know, we uh, you know we had about 15 people over to the house. It was really nice to like host Thanksgiving for the first time in actually a really, really long time. Right. Uh, We've had, you know, Christmas and everything here, but to have extended family come over and we cooked everything and the whole bit, that was, it was pretty special. Nice, nice, yeah. nice, nice. Good day. And the 49ers yeah. won, so I'm happy. About that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, well, you know what? And I'm, I, I can relate to that. It's, this was uh, my realization that the first time we, I at 45 years have ever hosted family in my home and that's all a sign of my recovery. And it was sure. like, wow, what a beautiful thing to experience. It is. It's a gift. And I, I, I keep telling people recovery is a gift. Uh, and that, you know, it's, it's something that people that are out there struggling right now need to understand that there are gifts waiting for them on the other side. They just have to be willing to let go of their fear. Yeah. Um, the fear of withdrawal, the fear of facing their, their trauma, the fear of facing their problems and embrace and em embrace the idea of recovery because there are truly gifts on the other side. No doubt about it. Amen to that. And I, what I liked about ours is that, that, you know, I had that foot surgery, so they just planted my ass out in the backyard, you know, with the <laughs> next, next, next to a fire pit and a, and a TV screen. All right. And I was happy as a clam out there. I didn't have to do anything. It was perfect. And my Packers won. So there we go. <laughs> oh, everybody's happy then. That's everybody's funny. happy. You bet. <laughs> What'd you guys do with Flint? Ah, we just rolled them out. Rolled them out, rolled them outside. That was it. <laughs> Oh, heck. Well, again, thanks for coming back on. I know we've talked with, about having you on more frequently because you're just, A, such a knowledgeable and passionate person. But uh, a thing hit the news, and I was fired up about it, and Flint and I both agreed, you're the person to talk to. We recently yeah. had Ping from China come in, and I was seeing all over the news that 
boy, they cleaned up the streets really quick. They, the homeless and the addicts and let's get them off there and get out the spray and, you know, make yep. this beautiful. And our, our, our governor who we just love, uh, his comment was, well, when you have company come visit, you clean up. Yep. <laughs> what a moron. And it was so <laughs> effing disheartening. He, he left himself uh, that, you know, the quotes that he made about, you know, it's true because it's true that we, right. you know, that we had to clean up. But that quote's going to follow him around for a while. Uh, yeah. And the mayor of San Francisco standing behind him laughing is also going to follow her around for a while uh, because it just didn't it looked disingenuous is, is what it looked like. And, uh, you know, there's so many things to kind of dig into here. You know, there's a lot and there's a lot of misinformation that's floating around on, on in social media about actually what happened to the homeless mm-hmm, that were right. in San Francisco. Uh, you know, they were like, oh, they moved them all to Oakland or the, oh, they housed them all, which proves we can house them. No, the truth is, is they just moved them up a few blocks into the Tenderloin and into the Van Ness Corridor. And wow. they cleared, cleared out Market Street and UN Plaza and the whole area down by 4th and Mission by the Metreon. And they put up fences. They put up really? fences all around downtown San Francisco. Uh, and they were they were ID checking everyone as they walked into those areas um, to keep the homeless and to keep people that were struggling with addiction out of those areas. I mean, that's the only reason that I can think of. There was some pro-Palestine protests going on at the same time, too. But it's just <clears throat> really interesting to me that in the most liberal city in the United States that, uh, you know, that, that hates Donald Trump here with a passion, right? Right. Uh, and they hate the whole concept of, you know, building a wall and all that, uh, that the first thing they did is they came in and they put up walls all put over all. San Francisco. I mean, it, you have to understand the irony of that, right? Yeah. To keep to keep out a subset of the population, literally, it was to keep a subset of the population out of those areas, which uh, is not equity, right? We talk about right. equity. There's no equity in that. You know, uh, and they basically segregated that population back up into into the Tenderloin and out to the Van Ness Corridor where they waited it out for a week. That's basically what happened. They didn't, you know, they they may have housed maybe or sheltered maybe 120 people Mm. out of 8,000 homeless. And then the rest of them, they just said, nope, you got to go. See you later. And moved them up a few blocks. Wow. Unreal. Unbelievable. (laughs) I don't even know what to say, to be honest with you. I, 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 I just, I don't know. Uh, go, go, because I'm speechless at the moment. You know, I was watching Soylent Green the other night. Oh, wow. Been, been, maybe been a while for some of us. And I was like, God, this just reminds me of what is going on in San Francisco and L.A. It, it, it has so many of those things. And it's, it's just like, I'm laughing because if not, I'm going to get really angry. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, you know, we're just putting, so we're going to put on a good front. <laughs> yeah, that's what they did. So when he left, did they take the, the, the fences down and everybody yeah. back to the normal spot again? Yeah. So the week, the, the whole week of APEC. So, you know, it wasn't just President Z that was there. You had, you know, the president of the Philippines and the president of Vietnam and you had the president of the United States. You know, nobody talks about the fact that POTUS was here too, right? Right. Uh, and so you had all these cops. You had uh, an extra 150 CHP officers working in the city, along with the cops and a bunch of feds. And mm. the cops were working, were given unlimited overtime during the whole week. So you had cops working doubles and triples out there uh, right. to create this 
police presence out on Market Street and south of Market area when, where all the events were taking place. And all of a sudden, like literally all of a sudden, the streets looked great. Yeah. They looked secure. They did come and spray them down and clean them up. But the, there was like two cops on every corner and nobody was getting shoplifted. Right. There was nobody out there shooting dope on Market Street out in the open. There were no drug dealers out during the day. Now at night, at night, you know, we can talk about that because at night it kind of crept back in a little bit, but they still kind of kept it clear. Um, but you know, it was it was like a respite, you know. And and what that showed me is that with 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 the political will, and with the resources, they can improve street conditions while they are working on solving the issue of homelessness and drugs. Sure. Okay, so, you know, we we know that we've got 8000 homeless people in San Francisco that are struggling with addiction that are actually sleeping rough on the street. Um, They proved during APEC that they can move them out of certain areas like the areas of commerce, where all the shopping is, where all the tourists go. They can move them out of there and keep those streets secure if they want to. But there's just no real desire to do so. And then they complain that, oh, we don't have the resource to do it. Well, maybe, you know, it wasn't a good idea to turn on the police three years ago, like we did as a country. Uh, Maybe it wasn't a good idea to divert funding and then give it back and then discourage recruitment and all those things. And now, you know, San Francisco's down 700 police officers. Maybe, maybe that wasn't a good idea um, because it, as it turns out to improve street conditions, it requires an element of law enforcement. It just does. You said that you said that in your last, in the last podcast. Of course. Nothing's changed. Nothing. nothing If if anything, it it was made more evident by APEC uh, that showed that you know when all these important folks come to town, yeah, all of a sudden the feds can show up in force and arrest a couple of hundred drug dealers, which is what they did. Right. Uh, It it shows that all of a sudden the CHP is not that necessary out on the highways. You can bring them all into San Francisco. Uh, It shows that oh, all of a sudden they do have the money to pay double and triple uh, OT to right. cops to, to work and they're raking in the dough. Um, so, the, so the resources are actually there. The money's actually there. Uh, there's just not no political will. And actually not even in absence of that, there's just a desire to not fund the police fully without asking our, uh, us taxpayers to pay even more out of our pocket to fund them when that's a basic need that should already be part of your city's annual budget. New Perceptions North, the premier drug and alcohol treatment and recovery center in Central California. A full continuum of medically supervised top quality care with programs for detox and patient residential treatment with dual diagnosis, intensive outpatient treatment, sober living support groups, and more. New Perceptions North provides adult men and women with the highest caliber of professional health care, treating each client with compassion and respect in a safe, comfortable environment to begin the process of recovery to proudly create and sustain a life without addiction. Call 559-978-1507 or visit newperceptionsnorth.com. It doubly proves, once again, we're in another situation where we have our governor, others, spouting a bunch of bullshit that they don't even believe. It just go, goes to prove they're like, no, this is the way it is. If it was really the way that it is and they see it that way, they would have left everything as is. They would have just left it as is. But they didn't. 
They come in and they do all of this, just proving it, it, just how much more full of shit, I don't know how else to say it, they are about the whole situation. So look, the, the whole uh, the way I look at all of this is I look at criminal justice reform as a whole, as an mm. experiment. It's an experiment on human beings and on society. And um, I think people like Governor Newsom would like things to work different. I think he would like the community, the idea of community policing and social justice to actually work, right? The problem is, is that it doesn't work, right? It's at least not working in the form that they have presented to the people, okay? Right. Uh, which has then is now forcing him to pivot because whole entire cities are becoming destabilized because of crime, homelessness, and drugs. And so it's not just San Francisco, it's LA, 74,000 homeless in Los Angeles County, I was on Skid Row last month. It's as bad as ever. It's just out of completely out of control. Um, you know, Fresno, Sacramento, and so it's not just the big coastal cities, right? It's all the in, in the cities inland too, and in the Central Valley in California, they're all struggling with the same thing: this kind of desire to move away from public safety or to reimagine public safety. I think that's the term we hear a lot amongst the kind of radical leftists and criminal justice reformers. We want to reimagine public safety, but the way they've reimagined it is turns out that it's nihilistic, that they just want to just basically disband the police and get rid of public safety and decriminalize everything. And then they have this weird utopian dream where everybody's just going to behave. Right. 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 Don't they understand that criminals are, are, are going to be criminals? I, 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 right. I mean, crim cr look, it's, it's, it's like, what's this, co this company, the, 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 the drug policy alliance. Right. That that that. Oh, get me started on them, man. Oh, Tom. I, oh, we're going to. Oh, we're going to because I started reading on these guys. I want to come to San Francisco. I want to I want to confront these people face to face. I can't believe what they're talking about as far as 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 changing policy for drug dealers. I mean, I, I mean, I am in shock over this one. So the Drug Policy Alliance, just to give you a little background, they're a national organization that have, has a branch in San Francisco and in California. Uh, but they're, a, you know, they, they received a $50 million grant from the Soros Foundation. Right. That's how they operate. Okay. Right. $10 million a year for five years. Uh, and they're literally influencing national drug policy, drug policy at a national level in Washington, D.C., uh, so that's something that is not on people's radar, and it's something that's become a big focus of my advocacy as I've pivoted my advocacy to look at drug policy because underneath homelessness and housing policy and all those things is this drug policy, yeah. this radical interpretation of harm reduction, this effort to decriminalize drug dealings, this effort to legalize drugs, and all of it's being driven by the Drug Policy Alliance and the National Harm Reduction Coalition. And so, you know, my, my goal is to basically challenge them. That's right. it. I want to stand up and challenge them from the belly of the beast in San Francisco and just say, hey, wait a minute. I used to sleep on the street. I used to stick a needle in my neck. I know exactly what addiction does to a human being. And what you are proposing is going to, to, to completely destroy whatever semblance of public safety that we have left in this country. And on top of that, nobody's ever going to want to get clean because right. no one's ever going to challenge someone or give them a nudge or a push or intervene in a way that can guide someone towards recovery. So you're really just on your own. And if you're homeless and you're in a tent and you're smoking fentanyl every two hours, that aha moment doesn't really come for people in, the, in that situation. You have to be faced with a choice 
many, many times, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, you're going to go to jail or we're going to hold you accountable in this way. Uh, you need to make a choice. And then they make a choice. Uh, yeah. But if we take away those choices and just say, hey, body autonomy, do what you want. We're, we're going to make it easier for you to use drugs. Uh, no one's ever going to make that choice. And you're going to see the amount of people struggling with addiction explode. And we all know what happens when you become an addict, uh, especially to meth and to uh, opioids and opiates, etc. You spiral. Your life spirals yep. out of control. And oftentimes leads to homelessness uh, or, as they say in the big book, jails, institutions, or death. Absolutely. We've removed the jails. So all that's left are a few institutions and death. Right. That's, that's kind of what we're facing now. And it's unbelievable that, um, that they've gained so much influence uh, in drug policy in this country. And uh, it takes folks like us to stand up to them and say, no, this is wrong. We yeah. need to place the focus back on recovery, back on treatment, and remind people that accountability is a cornerstone of recovery. Yeah. You know, it's, it's look, I'm just going to give my, my view on this. It's, it's like people supporting terrorists. You know, what, what, when I watch this stuff, when I listen to it and the majority of these, you're always going to get the people that are pro Hamas, pro Palestinian, whatever you want to call it, because they're just evil. Right. But you also have a massive amount of people out there and, and specifically younger people that they never get all of their facts. They, they, they just don't. They pick out one saying here, one saying there. It looks good. It feels good, blah, blah, blah. And then they go balls to the wall in support of something. Mm-hmm. And again, my just my 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 opinion. You support Hamas. You're supporting Nazism. I, I, I mean, it, to me, there is no difference here. OK, but when you. You get your news from TikTok, man. It's not going to have very good results. <laughs> right, right, right. That's what I was thinking. Well, you know, they got lots of good reels there, Flint. Right, but 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 my but my point here is, it's it's sort of like people that are quote advocates in what we do. They'll they'll see somebody like Drug Policy Alliance. They'll get bits and pieces out of them and go, oh, that looks good, and then they get back and support them. But they're not. But they're not knowing the reality of 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 truly what's going on. I think if the majority of these people knew truly what was going on, they they might have somewhat of a change of of mind here, a change of heart. I, I mean, because I mean, people just can't be that ignorant, or can they? Well, it you know that's a great question because nobody knows about drug policy. Nobody, nobody right. has any idea of like you know the whole concept of harm reduction and how it's applied within our laws in this country right now yeah. uh, around open air drug use and open air drug dealing. You know, um, the Drug Policy Alliance a couple of years ago wrote wrote an article, uh, it's still out there on the internet called Rethinking the Drug Dealer. And they basically said that drug dealers were the first line of defense in harm reduction and are actually a friend to the drug addict. Holy shit. User. Because they're the ones that that know their supply and they're actually talking to them about their supplies to to help the drug user use more safely. And then that that dealer then becomes a dependable source of drugs for the user. And so they are actually the first line of defense in drug dealing. What was the article called again? Rethinking the drug dealer. Just Google it. You'll see it. It's there. It'll blow your mind, man, when you read it. (laughs) That's a big Um, WTF. Yeah. Wow. I mean, this is who we're this is who we're up against, right? And they're winning. They're winning. I'll be yeah. honest, they're winning the battle because they've got the money. They've they've held the narrative around policy for a really long time. 
it's starting to change. We're pushing back. And it's not just like people on the right politically that are pushing back. It's people from the center right. that are pushing back because they're watching their cities disintegrate, like become destabilized, right? They're tired of people breaking into their cars. They're tired of people breaking into their garages and stealing their bikes. They're tired of, of you know, people on the street don't even ask for money anymore. They don't even ask for change. You know that? You walk around Market Street, you go you go up into the Tenderloin, there's nobody out there panhandling, let me kill me, hey man, you got a dollar? Nobody's asking for that anymore because they all got they all got theirs. They've got their hustle. You know, it, it's really interesting. If you think about it, if you go out there and you see, you'll see a guy standing there by the freeway holding a sign asking for money. Well, you know he's going to go buy meth with that money, right? But when you go into the Tenderloin now, it's so inundated with drugs and drugs are so cheap and there's so many services and they get so much money from general assistance, from welfare, that people aren't even asking for money anymore. They got it covered between that and the hustling, the shoplifting and, you know, the other hustles that you have out there on the street. They got it covered. It's crazy. Like, it's unbelievable. And this isn't just San Francisco. This is happening. I promise you, this is happening in Sacramento. It's happening in Fresno. It's happening in L.A. and in San Diego, too. Uh, across the state and uh, you know it you you hear the governor virtue signal about doing a few different things like you know holding fentanyl traffickers accountable he just introduced something today where he wants to make a trank a, a scheduled one narcotic uh but still make it available to veterinarians for for horses because trank is a horse tranquilizer mixed right. With fentanyl, right right you hear those things those virtue signaling moments from the governor saying oh well yeah he's really interested maybe in tackling the crisis but uh, he's not really interested in tackling the crisis, I don't think, uh, in the way that it needs to be tackled, because that would require a move back towards policing, a move back towards a, a, a reinvestment in public safety, and a move away from this narrative, this harm reduction narrative of like, you know, uh, we should just make it safer and easier for people to use drugs. And then when they're ready, and when they come to us and they're ready, uh, we'll usher them into treatment. Well, guess what? There's no treatment. There's no treatment. I keep going back since the last time we talked. I keep going back to your statement about whatever it was, the $569 million yeah. budget that San Francisco has for this. And there's 57 beds to serve 8,000 practicing drug addicts. You know, again, where's the money going? Right. I I, I mean, it, it goes to syringe. It goes to syringe access programs. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. I mean, it's just mind boggling. All of this uh... stuff, you know, so so. What do you, th I mean, how do we tackle uh, organizations like this? How do we get in front of them? How do we spark debate with them and in a forum that's actually going to get people to show up and listen to? Well, I'll be honest with you. Like, I'm a, I'm a pragmatic guy. I'm a middle of the road guy. I don't really want to have a debate with them at this point. I'm, I just want to challenge them completely and challenge their okay. entire narrative. Fair just, enough. What everything that you guys are saying is wrong, right? Uh, it's doing tremendous damage. Um, there are aspects of harm reduction that we can utilize, but your your nihilistic view of you just want to legalize drugs for everybody is is detrimental to the health and well being of the United States of America. That's kind of how I feel. That's really my personal view on it. Do I understand it has to be more pragmatic than that? Absolutely. And will it require some debate down the road? Probably, but I think it's important that we support national organization organizations that are willing to stand up to the Drug Policy Alliance, which is really a Goliath. It's really right. a Goliath yeah. out there. They're well funded, um, so you need to support orgs that support recovery that are on the national level. 
There's a, um, I'm associated now with this a national organization called the Foundation for Drug Policy Solutions. They're a group of, we're basically like moderates in the drug policy world. You've got General Barry McCaffrey, who's a former uh, uh, drug czar under Bill Clinton. You've got Dr. Kevin Sabet, who's really big on regulating legalized marijuana. Uh, you've got former Congressman Patrick Kennedy, who's in recovery from addiction yep. and alcoholism. Me, we're all part of this this group where we're trying to rise up kind of from the center and and acknowledge that there are aspects of harm reduction that can be useful, like Narcan, like medically assisted treatment for fentanyl, uh, Suboxone, maybe short-term methadone use is part of that as well. Uh, but really the focus has to be on creating climates of recovery yeah. in your communities. Climates of recovery, that means deep investment in drug treatment, deep investment in recruiting people to work in this field because there's a shortage of people that want to work in the field of drugs and homelessness Um, and changing the policy little by little. And, you know, it can start at your local level in your own city and work its way up uh, or it can start at the state level. I'm trying to do both. I've, I've been to Sacramento multiple times to argue for different bills around increasing accountability and penalties for fentanyl dealers and traffickers. Uh, and, you know, it looks like now maybe we're going to take a ballot to the uh, uh, a measure to the ballot to increase penalties on fentanyl dealers. I'm part of that. All right. So these are the things that you have to do. And it's it. And it, while well, at the same time, don't be afraid to go to Washington, D.C. One of the, the big highlights of my year this year was in April. I got to go to Washington, D.C. And I held a, I, I with that foundation and we held a congressional briefing. Nice. I got to, I got to stand up there and tell my story and talk about the fentanyl crisis in San Francisco at a con- in a congressional briefing. Right. Like that was like in, in the building where the, the big capital and everything with the congressmen and all that stuff. And that was huge Yep. because it, and they were li- interested. They were interested in listening and it wasn't just Republicans. Mm-hmm. It was Democrats too, because they know that back home in their communities, there are entire portions of their communities that are being ravaged by fentanyl right now. Right. And right. giving out foil pipes and straws to them is, really not a long-term solution uh, to address this crisis. Do you think a lot of it too, jumping back a bit, you know, it dawned on me that they, there's a lot of fear that if they just went, Hey, we're wrong. We got to shift directions. Well, they would never do that because they don't believe that they're wrong. This is the, this is the thing, right? When I, when I said earlier, it's like, I don't even know if I want to debate them because I, you could, you could, it's kind of like the pro-Palestine protesters, right? Okay, they believe in this message so much that, that Hamas could nuke Tel Aviv tomorrow. And they would still say that Hamas and Palestine were, were right. Right. Mm. There's no arguing. There's no changing their mind. There's nothing heinous enough that can happen that would change their mind and what they believe. In fact, as more people continue to die from drug overdose, they would just double down. Mm, right. so this, this is even more proof that we need to really legalize and regulate all this stuff and have safe supply and all that stuff. You know, and I keep reminding people, I got addicted to a safe supply. Yeah. I got addicted to oxycodone. That was safe supply. Right. Right. Pristine pharmaceutical grade oxycodone. Right. I'm addicted to that, you know, and I continued to buy it on the street. I was buying safe supply on the street. Right. Pristine pharmaceutical opioids. Right. So that whole notion to me is a bunch of BS because 
That's what began this whole crisis. People forget. Not only do they forget, but they don't understand what, again, I'm going to go back to this a thousand times. They don't understand what addiction is. They don't understand all, all of what we know all too well. They don't get it. And by the way, most people never will get it. But somehow, somehow we've got to get that across to these people that are actually casting their vote. Yeah, it's true. That's where people like us come in, trying to raise awareness and educate. Education, drug education isn't isn't teaching people how to use drugs safely. Drug education is teaching people about the drugs that are out there and what they can do to you and, and the illicit drugs that are out there and what they can do to you. And that's why it's really important to talk to kids, go to schools, talk to parents uh, and, you know, make them understand um, what these drugs are, make them understand that eight out of 10 street drugs right now contain fentanyl. And so when you're at a party and some people bust out some Coke and they're chopping up lines on the kitchen kitchen counter, when you could decide to go snort a line, there's an 80% chance that there's fentanyl. Like they need to under, those are the things that we need to raise awareness on and make people understand and, and, and make people also understand that fentanyl has really changed the game. Oh, it has changed the game. Uh, unbelievably changed the game. If you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, please call Pain Parents and Addicts in Need at 559-579-1551 or visit us online at painnonprofit.org. Follow us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Pain Nonprofit. And please subscribe to the Don't Hide the Scars podcast and share with others wherever you get podcasts and on YouTube. And if you would like to donate to Pain, Parents and Addicts in Need, please click the link in the description to make your tax-deductible donation today and help us save more lives gripped by addiction. Everything you said is absolutely 100% correct, right? But how, I, I, again, we've both been at this a long time. How in the world do these schools not allow people to come in and tell that that real story about it. I don't know what it's like in the Bay Area, but down here, sure, they will let law enforcement come in and talk about it. They almost don't have a, uh, they don't have a, a choice. They're going to have to allow law enforcement to come in. But for recovering addicts to come in to tell the, and I'm, ta I'm not talking about people with six months of sobriety or a year of sobriety. I'm talking about people with long-term sobriety that have been with long-term addiction that was attached to it, that that have somehow wound up okay through all of it, to come in and tell their story. The schools do not allow that here. And 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 so this this is this is this is so much bigger. Um, and I guess the only way I can put it is is somehow we have to be able to get it across to these organizations, whether it's a school district, no matter what it is. That you, if you if you don't allow us to come in, there's no way that that you're going to be able to get any help in this. These kids have to understand. These parents have to understand what this truly is. Right, and you're starting to see uh, some cracks form in that. In that, you there's people like uh, I don't know if you know who Laura and Chris Didier are. They're out of the Sacramento area. They're parents who lost their their child to a fentanyl poisoning. Okay. Their child purchased what he thought was Xanax off of Snapchat. It turns out it was a fentanyl pill 
he took it and he died of overdose in his bed. And they become very active in the movement to increase penalties for fentanyl dealers in California and throughout the country. And they've been starting, uh, Laura Didier in particular has been starting to travel around schools in the Sacramento area. They've allowed that to happen. Okay. Where she goes in and she tells her story to them and the loss and the pain that she, that she experienced uh, from losing her son to a fentanyl poisoning. So there's some hope, there's some glimmers of hope there. What, what you, so, but you guys are right in that there is a philosophical um, divide, okay? So having, let's say me walking into an elementary school here might be a problem for some people because I'm pro-recovery and right. uh, they are, you know, the, the teachers or the, maybe the administrators support har more harm reduction measures, right? So maybe they're not gonna be completely comfortable. But at the same time, I've spoken, uh, I went, I spoke at a couple of Catholic schools here in the, in, on the peninsula and in San Francisco. And they did, you know, the, the administrator told me, she goes, you know, we, we want to keep it, try to keep a kind of a harm reduction focus, but we really think your story is valid and we want you to share your story. And so there's a way to thread the needle on that, to incorporate mm -hmm. aspects of the harm reduction where it can help, you know, buprenorphine, suboxone, uh, you know, uh, Narcan, um, clean needles. So you stop the spread of HIV. Those are like acceptable things that you can talk about, right? To incorporate some of the harm reduction. But by the end of that conversation, the entire conversation was focused on recovery from addiction yeah, and on the, de the detriments of, of addiction and then recovery and how it is possible. And there's a lot of kids that were in, the, in those rooms that I spoke to whose parents are alcoholics or drug addicts. Right. There was one girl that came up to me and said, my mom is homeless in the tenderloin right now. Jeez. You know, and this is at a good school and the dad's the dad's doing it all, you know, so it really resonated with her. So I'm just saying, you know, you never know who that message is going to reach. Um, there's a lot of assumptions that because of what school or demographic, social demographic or your how much money you make that addiction isn't isn't prevalent in your community or your family. That's a bunch of BS. We know that addiction right. doesn't discriminate. Right. So, you, you know, you'd be surprised how many people that were affluent have come up to me or reached out to me and said, oh man, my, my daughter or my son is out there on the street and I don't know how to get them out of the, out of this mess that they're in. And they're loaded. They live in, they live in Seacliff in San Francisco, you know, right. like that. Right? Tom, 93% of our clientele went, went to an upper end high school here in, here in Fresno. Sure. 93% because we keep track of where these kids all went to high school, you know? So, so, he, I, I almost think in most places it's, it's, it's the higher upper end, uh, families with income, you know, that this, that this has affected. Uh, and, and again, you know, preaching this for the last 15 years and, and, and it's like, we're in the same spot we were 15 years ago, 12 years ago. I mean, some of it has gotten a little better. The awareness piece definitely has. I mean, how do you, how do you, how does anyone in, in, in the United States today not aware about fentanyl? I, I mean, you got to be living on Mars, you know, if, 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 if you haven't heard about it. Um, but yet it is, it is, again, I posted something the other day just because it pissed me off. You know, here we have the war in the Middle East, which, which I understand. But I haven't heard, excuse me, I haven't heard shit. OK, from any other advocate out there, not in our area, talking about fentanyl, talking about treatment, talking about 
even even long-term harm reduction. It's like it just it just it just kind of floats away, you know, floats away and then it comes back, floats away, then it comes back, you know, instead of it being hit hard. This is the number one killer in the United States today. Why aren't we talking about this every day? Agreed. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I posted a tweet a couple of weeks ago that ended up being kind of controversial, which is good. I like controversy sometimes. You bet. Uh, Where, you know, they were, you know, someone I said, you have all these social justice warriors uh, protesting this genocide. This, this supposed genocide, genocide, quote unquote, that's happening in Palestine. What about the genocide happening in the United States? Right. 110,000 a year dying from drug overdose. What about the fact that that more people die in the age group of age 18 to 45 from overdose than anything else? Why, why is it that overdose is killing more people than car accidents and gun violence combined? Where are the where are the rallies in the streets for that? They rally, you know, and the thing that kills me I just have to say it this way, um, is that the same people that are advocating for decriminalization and legalization and harm reduction of drugs would more than happily repeal the Second Amendment and and bring prohibition to guns in this country, despite the fact that drug overdose is killing far more people than gun violence is killing in this country. So it just doesn't make any sense, the logic that they apply to drugs doesn't apply is the exact opposite logic to guns, even though drugs are killing way more people in this country than drug than than guns are. So I just it, it's really important to point that out. And it's you know, it's not it's not a that's not a Republican thing or Democrat. That's just a common sense, logical way of looking at something is that how can these same groups of people go out there and say we need to decriminalize drug use and drug possession and drug dealing? And at the very and, and eventually we want to legalize it and we should have consumption rooms for everyone to shoot dope all day and all that stuff and they turn around and they say i would vote yes to repeal the second amendment and ban guns and bring prohibition it's like yeah. that against uh, we hate pro- prohibition of, of drugs but we love prohibition of guns right Even drugs yeah. kill way more people yeah. so i death is the ultimate statistic to me it's final it's finite like that's it there's nothing else beyond that you, you're death so we just want to go off of that piece of data we are absolutely failing as a country to respond and the policies that we're that we're implementing are completely backwards because deaths have only increased since we began the whole decriminalization model in 2015 in california right yeah well and i what is this statistic it's something like uh two 747s full a day uh crashing over the course of a year that's what our rate is and if and if that happened we would be up in arms what's wrong with the travel that this is not safe this is dangerous this is terrible oh you know it's like my goodness people what like it i'm just amazed at the inability like we were just saying there i mean people you're giving individuals the loaded gun that they can aim at themselves every day they're playing russian roulette so they're handing out you go down the street there's people pulling a red wagon down in the tenderloin in san francisco right now handing out uh, hygiene hygiene kits is what they call them and uh, you know they've got baby wipes condoms uh but they also have a clean rig a glass pipe a crack pipe or a meth pipe uh and then it has you know a cooker tourniquet cotton balls all the stuff that you need to mix up a shot of whatever it is you're going to mix up and stick it in your body or smoke it up foil and straws too those are all included in your hygiene kit uh, they're giving all that out right now and it's almost kind of like saying well here's here's your free gun here you go yeah 
just go up there to the corner to those drug dealers over there and you can buy your bullets for five bucks. Right. Yeah. And they, they have enough to buy one bullet. So they stick their one bullet in their revolver and they close it and they spin it around and put it to their head and pull the trigger. That's exactly it. It's exactly what's happening right now. And it drives me nuts that people don't want to look at it that way. And if you do say that, then you're a Republican or you're a right winger or you're a fascist. I, I hear it all in San Francisco. You know, I'm I, here I am still a moderate Democrat and I'm still being called a fascist on the daily right. in San Francisco for calling out some of this madness that's happening on our streets, all because I experienced it personally. I've got the scars on my arms to prove it, you know, and try to tell people that, no, this is not the way. And they're too interested in um, listening to the kind of purple haired activists that want to talk about, you know, there's a, there was a rally at city hall uh, recently. Um, Hold on a second. My battery's done. I'm going to plug in my charger. (laughs) It was a rally city hall uh, uh, recently about overdose deaths, right? And you had Dean Preston, who's a Democratic Socialist on our Board of Supervisors in the city, like our city council. He was leading the rally. And so it was all like the, the harm reduction folks that were out there on the steps. And one guy had a sign that he was holding up all very proudly and happily saying downtown is for drug users. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. The supervisor, an elected official standing there giving the speech to two's holding a sign next to him smiling downtown is for drug users. No, and I'm just kidding. like. This is where we this is where this radical harm reduction has led us to in San Francisco is that now there are people openly advocating to basically surrender our downtown. Unbelievable. Yeah. Tom, can you is there any way you could get a hold of one of those uh uh what 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 did you call them those those kits um a hygiene kit the hygiene kit is there any way you can get a hold of one of those and send it down to us? Yeah, I'll try. Sure. Okay. I I yeah, I I'd appreciate it. I want to yeah. I you know before but because I don't, I don't think that's hit Fresno yet. But mm. but it, it it sure wouldn't surprise me if it if it does. But but this is something that I would like to I'd I'd, I'd like to see it because I want to talk to some people about this. Hopefully, so we don't get to that point. And and what's important to understand is that those hygiene kits are embedded in what they call syringe access programs. So mm-hmm. in San Francisco, they spend about thirty six million dollars every three years on various syringe access programs in the city. And embedded with that, within that, those programs are foil pipes and straws. So when you're signing off on the syringe access program or when like a concerned citizen or a voter sees or reads it in the paper about, oh, these syringe access programs, you're thinking, oh, that's good. We're going to stop the spread of HIV and hepatitis C. What they don't tell you is that that funding also funds foil pipes, straw, right. Right. and all the other things that go with it. And regardless of how you feel about needles, foil pipes and straws is enabling. There's no harm or element there. There's not. There, there is none. None. Yeah. Um, when I was on the street, I had to hustle three bucks for a pipe and 50 cents for a piece of foil and a straw from the liquor store because they would sell. You know, I, I had to hustle to get that. And now you don't have to anymore. So I guess the harm reduction is that the user gets to keep 350 in their pocket and that you're almost you've almost got enough to buy some fent right there. See, and this, hey, and, and again, I'm sorry, but, but this is the stuff that, 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 that needs to be talked about to those, to those quote, harm reduction people, advocates, whatever you want to call them, that don't know the, the, the truth about it. They're that, that they're only seeing a small piece of, of the harm reduction. Yeah. Um, a lot of these people that promote it, they don't even have an idea this is going on. I guarantee it. 
Yeah. At least up here. Or hit a headline and it's easily as Tom, you're talking about. I mean, we're three, you're, you're left moderate. I'm like really in the middle and Flint's right moderate, I would say. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's like, this isn't a political thing. This is people's lives. Like I, right. off what you said, the 36 million, I did some quick math based on the idea. If you had to maybe fund for a private treatment, say $30,000 a month, that's 400,000 months you could provide treatment for that $36 million. I, I was just going to say, uh, thank you. That's that's a great info. But I was also going to say this. It, it They spent $36 million in three years, right? It takes at least two years for a established treatment facility to apply for, go through the ringers, jump through the hoops to obtain the licensing for Medi-Cal in a particular in a particular county in the state of California it takes two years and then you're not even guaranteed it. And it's just it's obscene to me. How about, how about if you're if you're a service provider in San Francisco that wants to open a drug treatment facility, let's say you're a 501c3 and you want to open a drug treatment facility, you have to wait five years before you can apply to do a contract with the city, you have to be in existence for five years first. Why does it, why does a private, why would a private, you know, you're talking about a 501c3. You're not, you're not talking about private. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Private's different. That's different. As long as you're licensed then you know, you have to be licensed under the rules of the state of California, which, you know, we, we get all that. Right. But I'm just saying like, if you were a nonprofit and you wanted to open up a drug rehab, and, you know, kind of like a Salvation Army style type of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd have to wait five whole years before you could apply for any RFP with the city, any contract. Do they have a reason behind that? I'm not sure if it's because they want to make sure they're legit or I'm not sure. But it's just interesting that they put th those requirements on the front end and then they have no auditing of any of the hundreds of millions of dollars that right. they make <laughs> on existing nonprofits on the back end. Right, I mean, right. They, they had to have a meeting yesterday, a hearing at the board of supervisors here yesterday, because one of the best supervisors on that board is uh, Catherine Stefani. Um, she's great. She actually called a hearing because she wants to have an investigation done into the auditing of nonprofits in San Francisco that have contracts with the city across the board. And the city spends like, you know, $360 million a year on different non on, on nonprofit contracts, like across the board, just for homelessness. Right. That doesn't count for like trash pickup or education program. It doesn't count for all that. That's just for homeless services, just for one year contracts. And 110 million of that goes to just one nonprofit in hmm. San Francisco. Um, so there's, so there's a monopoly on drug treatment in the city and, so it's really just one guy doing all the one org doing all the treatment. Everybody else got pushed out to the edges. Um, and, you know, we're trying to change that. We're trying to reintegrate some of these smaller service providers back into the mix so that there's more options for people when they want to seek treatment. We're trying to create a treatment on demand system in San Francisco. Like like when I say we, I mean me and my friend Steve Adami, the, there's a recovery working group. We're all trying. We're working hard. Uh, and we have different service providers attached to that where we're trying to string together this whole continuum of care that's going to run as a almost like as an alternative to the existing model that's in san francisco to say hey we're going to do this continuum of care we're going to focus it on recovery we're going to we're going to have the harm reduction elements that are required uh, in there but really the focus is that when you're done you're living a drug-free life
That's our goal. Uh, and that's what we're trying to push here. And uh, it's picking up traction, man. Good. And it's picking up traction because we're going to lose 800 people to drug overdose this year in San Francisco. Right. We're going to set a new record for ODs in the city. Tiny little city. You know, we're, did you know San Francisco, we have four times as many overdose deaths per capita than anywhere else in California? No, I, I, yeah, I believe, believe, I believe that. it. Yeah, I mean, I do. So, so when I say we're the epicenter of the opioid crisis in the Western United States, if not the entire United States, that's why. Sure. We lose more people per capita in this city than anywhere else except for maybe Philadelphia. That's it right. because of Kensington, right? Uh, right. So, yeah, the, the crisis is bad. And you're right. We have 57 detox beds in the whole city. We have 500 treatment beds split between residential treatment and step-down housing. So it's not even really 500 drug treatment beds. It's about 250 drug treatment beds and another 250 or so step-down housing beds after treatment. So you have somewhere to go live. And you have 22,000 drug users in San Francisco. Right. You know, and, and here just, I just thought of this. This brings up something else too. And there's people out there that, I hope this makes sense, that are getting pissed off at private treatment centers and they're going, oh, all oh, these private treatment centers, they're just making so much money and they're making this and they're, they're making that. Okay, well, look, some are, okay? Most of us are kind of in the middle, right? Some of us are just below that. But when there's not enough treatment centers that, that, that come from our, from our counties, and from our and from our cities and governmental aid, well, of course, the private treatment center is going to make more money. Right. You know, again, I go, I go back to I go back to that 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 whole thing of of why does it take so long? There are private treatment centers that will come in and want to take the medical issue on. By the way, the medical issue is a pain in the ass. <laughs> okay, to take on it's it's huge, but again, it takes two years. While 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 there's while there is a, a treatment center, maybe one or two in that particular county that is so backed up they can't even get people in. Right, and and the medical issue is you know it's it doesn't come without its it doesn't come without its pitfalls using medical. bad. Okay, so first of all, it's thirty, sixty, or ninety day coverage. I guess they're extending that now to maybe six months. Um, they used to have a limit on how many times you could use it for treatment. I guess they've taken that away, which is good. Um, but I, I, in at least in San Francisco, from what I've seen, and this is just my opinion, is that we have one primary addiction treatment provider that does mostly Medi-Cal billing. And then we have a few moderate sized ones that don't, that do depend on private funding for their treatment, right? Um, but the one that accepts the Medi-Cal billing has gotten so big, like $400 million a year budget big like that, that they're more, it seems like they're more interested in the, the money part than they are in, in servicing the need. And so that's that's the pitfall, right? I, am, I know they do some good work. I know they have good people working for them. I know that they want to help people, but I also know they like that money. And I also, so I don't know. Yeah, but you also have to understand this: that the the the, the and medical their requirements are so stringent, their their policies, their procedures that a treatment center has to follow. Again, I'm not I'm not justifying you know sure. the, the the greed that's over there because it is out there, but it's so stringent on what you have to do, and it and it's and it's simply like this as well. And I can use my treatment center as an example. 
with 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 private insurance do you do you know that the most that 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 most of us if we've billed somebody in last March we just got paid for that client that's rough that's that that that's a fact right that's a fact there the major 95% of the policies out there because it's not everyone but i'd say 90% of the policies out there once you bill it's a minimum of 4 months before you see your money so how are they expecting anybody to to grow to to uh, uh you know again love what they do it's it's because now you're so worried about <laughs> keeping your business open that yeah, there's treatment centers out there that are going to shove some, pull somebody out of their treatment center to bring somebody else in, and that's just the nature of the beast. And again, not every treatment center does that. But my God, when it takes four minimum four months to to receive your money from an insurance company, that along with that are cutting down the number of days. That, that our clients can actually stay. Now we're seeing 17 to 22 days instead of 28 full days, depending on the policy. You know, it, it's, it's, so there's both sides to this, to this treatment financial piece. I guess that's the best way, you know, for, for, for me to put it. But the, the result is, is that as a result of the clandestine billing practices, the state, the state's, um, clandestine rules around who qualifies for treatment, how to qualify with Medi-Cal, your income, insurance companies and the hoops they make you jump through, uh, nonprofits on their, in their ability to raise money. Then you factor in philosophy. Is it faith-based? Is it not faith-based? Yep. Is it harm reduction? Is it abstinence only? How can we integrate those things? While we're all sitting there kind of stuck in our own spaces, uh, there's this huge gap that's developed, um, not just with the funding, but with this desire to work together. Even I said it earlier, I almost feel bad for saying it about the Drug Policy Alliance, because I know at the end of the day, everybody in this business of drugs and addiction and recovery and homelessness, everybody wants one basic thing. They want to save lives. I, I know that. There's nobody here, even the most radical leftist folks that I don't like or whatever, everyone wants to save lives like there's this baseline that we all agree on it's just that when we start to go up the ladder of how to get there it diverges and it goes into all these different directions and it's trying trying to find a way to build that bridge between all of them is super challenging because um everyone's dug in to their beliefs into their philosophies there uh, some some organizations are dependent on this person continuing to fund them or this foundation continuing to fund them. This organization is dependent on Medi-Cal billing over here to stay in business. And um, and it's just it's it's just a mess. The whole thing's a mess, which is why, you know, I've I've advocated along with Michael Schellenberger when he wrote San Francisco. We talked about having a, an actual statewide addiction treatment um, like system that is put in place that's not not funded and run necessarily by the state, but have an oversight of all of the treatment that's out there to try to bring everyone together sort of kind of under one umbrella. And then it becomes easier for the state to direct money to this one umbrella that then comes down across everything. Uh, that might work better at this point. Like if you're gonna socialize any kind of medicine, 
addiction treatment might be and mental health treatment might be the ones to do it, you know, um, just because the crisis is so out of control. It's so hard to get someone into a mental health facility. It's so hard to get someone get, to get Medicare to pay for any kind of mental health of any kind. Uh, and oftentimes that's, you know, that that's combined with drugs, the drug yep. use, drug addiction, yeah, it is. you know, uh, so to figure all that out, it's this huge mess. It takes sometimes months and years to jump through to get someone that has schizophrenia that also uses meth into an actual treatment facility that will take them, right? Because of dual diagnosis, right? Right. Um, those kinds of things. So, you know, at this point, maybe that that's where maybe the government can help us mm-hmm. is, is in that area of medicine because the struggle has become so big and it's so out of control. And there's such a huge addiction and mental health crisis amongst the homeless population that we see out there that if we don't want to use jails as the infrastructure that we used to use in the past, then we need to start thinking about building another infrastructure. And so, you know, you have a, a, a system, a state system that ran all the jails. Why can't you have a state system that runs all the addiction and mental health treatment, mm-hmm. you know, and, and maybe pivot to build a whole new infrastructure. And I'm just spitballing here, but I'm just, I'm trying to think bigger picture because otherwise we're all going to be continuing to spin our wheels down here at the ground level, trying to save lives with limited resources while fighting each other over philosophy mm, instead right. of instead of trying to find bigger solutions that can bring real help and treatment and recovery to the masses. That's what I would like to see. Right. You know, and you and you said so much right there. I mean, which, which again, I, I appreciate you saying that. But I discovered this seriously 14 years ago when when I started this thing. And we, some, some folks around here, we, we, we put together this little, little sub organization that was called the lock it up project, uh, in order to lock up medicines in, in, in your medicine cabinets. And it worked, it worked pretty well. Um, even had some home builders that actually went and and were putting locked medicine cabinets in their new homes that they were building. Hmm. Um, and, and it was, and it was, again, just a little something that was happening, but here's what I learned early on. And it's, and in a town like Fresno and this area, (laughs) nobody wanted to work together. My thought going in was let's bring in this group. Let's bring in this group. Let's bring in this group, this group, this group, and the County and the city and all of this stuff, just like you're talking about. Okay. And, and again, I'm not trying to one up anybody here, but I did this 14 years ago and said, come on, let's, let's, let's do this thing. Okay. It blew up faster than, than, than a balloon with too much helium in it. <laughs> oh man. Because, because people, you know, the bottom line was people, well, you know what, you know what, the, he, they may take my client. I don't want them to take this client. I, you know, yeah. blah, blah, blah. On Just the petty little bullshit. Okay. And you know something It continues to this day here. Yeah. It continues to this day. And you're right. If somehow we could get that right group of, of people and organizations together, I think we can make a hell of a difference. When you think about how much money the state spends, you know, Newsom introduced some grant stuff today, $300 million in grants to all these different counties to help fight homelessness. And he actually said in an interview that, uh, you know, we actually haven't we haven't given that much money to the to this issue in, in the past. And I'm like, he, he's given $17.5 million in the last five years to homelessness in California. Um, that's a lot of money. Lot and of money. So, so even if he took, like, let's say you had a, a pool of $20 B 
billion dollars, right? That the state, because they have that kind of money, right? right? And they decided that they were going to take $5 billion or $10 billion of that and devote it all to, to developing, creating drug treatment, climates of recovery, mental health treatment. We could do more just with that in five years than probably we've done in the last 30. Absolutely. And it's not hard. You know, and and you know, you can have a committee and all that, but at the end of the day, you have one oversight that's going to make some some harder decisions. Now, there'll probably be some battles about who's in charge of that oversight, but, <laughs> right? Right? Uh, the the radical harm reduction folks, and then you got the other the, the you know, but if they did it kind of like a three man panel, maybe oversighting it that has reasonable representation from you know lived experience to a doctor to someone who's an MSW. Um, that could all kind of come together and try to find some solutions and then kind of filter it down. Uh, that might help, you know, that might help recruit social workers, recruit psychiatrists, recruit drug counselors, recruit case managers, uh, and maybe be able to pay them a little better than what we pay them now to, you know, cause that's part of the problem too, is there's not enough people who want to do it. So what I'm basically suggesting is a complete reboot. You know why that's not probably going to happen? As much as I want it to happen, here comes my right conservative side. <laughs> All right. Let's hear it. Fuck okay. off. Here it but... comes. All right. These people do not know how to run businesses. Yeah. Well, okay. That's true. You know, when you're talking about the private sector versus versus government or state or anything else, the yeah. private sector, I'm sorry. You know what? I'll say a lot of us know how to run a business. And we know what it takes for that business to succeed. And a lot of times it means taking chances, not being afraid to fail, going after it, knowing who's in charge, because you always have to have the one person that finally says yes or no. You cannot have a committee. Committees are, are what? It's like when we're using in that committee we've got going on in our head. You have to have the one person that says yay or nay on the final decision making. And that's and, and again, that's why I've said over the years, why 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 won't government agencies, county agencies allow the private sector to come in to help them with this? We know how to run the business end. We know how to run the treatment end. So why not bring us in? Because again, without being arrogant, we've been successful at it. Right. I think it's because the state has, I don't want to say unlimited resources, but there's less account. The whole point here is there's no accountability, right? There's less accountability. So if they screw up and they Mm. squander $50 million grant, no one's really going to say anything because it's the state that did it or somebody who contracted the state did it, you know? That's part of the problem. So we have to bring back accountability in our governance. I, I get it. And I'm also concerned about philosophy and ideology, you know, with the rise of the kind of radical left in this area um, versus versus kind of people that are trying to be more centrist about this. You know, um, we're kind of losing that battle, even though we're pushing back. So um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I'm concerned, but I, I have to try. I think the point is, is that we try, need to try to think bigger about solutions to this crisis, to homelessness too, you know, and housing and all that stuff. I I sent a tweet out today saying, you know, last year in California, we had a $90 billion budget surplus. Instead of the governor building housing and ending homelessness, which he could have pretty much done with that, he sent us gas rebate cards. 
And I'm just laughing because I have a hybrid. So it didn't really apply that much to me. I was nice to get the money, you know, just in time for, for Christmas. But, you know, it didn't. I'm just like, and then they're lamenting about how there's no housing. I, I mean, right. I just, I don't get it. And um, yeah. it just seems to me that our current leadership in Sacramento, some of them are good. A lot of them are just there to virtue signal. A lot of them have never had a regular job. Right. They yeah. went to college, they got maybe a Juris Doctorate to become a lawyer, and then they got a job as a community organizer, which is not right. a job. Right. Yeah. Or union organizer, which is not a job. Right. And they got elected and they've been a politician all this time. And so they do they have an understanding of what it's like to work um, no. in a store, even even in a store, even at Home Depot. Right. Right. I mean, ringing people up. Do they? I, I don't I don't think so. You know, no. so I, I just let alone run a business. So I'm concerned. I have concerns about that. You know, I got I got to tell you guys this one this this one thing. I remember years ago I was in the I was in the produce business. You you, you knew that, yeah. and we were we were importing uh, Turkish apricots. All right, dried apricots from Turkey, and I had a boss who was just a hard ass, and but and I and I learned so much from him just in this one little thing, because I made a half a million dollar mistake. Oh. Oh yeah. On, on a few loads that were coming in from Turkey into New York, then out to California. And he walked into my office. He stood in the doorway. He was only about five foot seven, but he had this beard and he was intimidating because he never smiled. And he looked at me and he simply said this, don't ever fucking let it happen again. And he turned around and he walked out. And it told me two things. Here's here here's a boss with 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 some empathy, knowing I made a mistake. I was young and what I was doing, but also setting that tone of you make that mistake again, buddy, you're gone. And maybe I should have been gone then, you know. And I get and what my point is that's the problem I think with 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 the government. Okay. Nobody's held accountable. Like you said, they make a mistake. It's eh, oh, well, all right. Because they're afraid of firing somebody for even making a mistake. And there's no one to replace them. Look, there's no, there's no, there's no Republicans to speak of in California and Sacramento in elected office, right? There's like eight. I know some of them. They're nice, nice folks, but there's just not that many of them, you know, let's be real. Right. So you, what you have is you have a super majority of Democrats, which is fine. But then you have a super majority of progressives within that within that democratic supermajority. So that even the moderate Democrats that are on um, the outliers, um, they're the outliers. They don't yeah. they don't get the committee assignments and all those things. And if they go against the grain, they get kicked off of whatever committee and get banished. Right. right. That's the downside about one party rule, you know, yep. which is uh, really why I would like to see a, a rise. From the middle. So this is what this is what I challenge you, Jason. You said something earlier that really resonated with me. It's like you said that, you know, I was left of center, you're center and you're le and you're right of center. Well, I think it's time that all of us that are around the center, that we all band together. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I, I do agree with that. And, and build a coalition and push the extremes away. Because, you know, four years ago, it was this extreme right and the proud boy thing. Now it's this extreme radical left stuff with the whole college campuses and everything that's happening. I mean, it's madness. It's mad I have two teenage kids there. It's madness for them to have to go. It's not right. It's it's detrimental to their mental health, how it's affecting them. 
in their school because they keep getting challenged about, well, how do you feel about this? Well, how do you feel about that? What's your opinion on this? What's your opinion on that? And it's like, you know, we're, uh, I'm not ashamed to say like, we're, we're pro-Israel in my house. I mean, Hell I'm yeah. Pro-Israel, I am we're too. pro-Israel on this. They got, they're the ones that got attacked, you know? Um, Absolutely. So I just leave it at that. I, I don't go into all these details and all, I know there's more history behind it and all that stuff. Um, but my kids like, man, they have to be quiet about that stuff. It's cool. That's not, and they're That's not, not even right. Jewish. Now imagine if you were Jewish, how you would feel, right? All right. Oh. These folks talk about all this anti-racism and all that. Well, you know, apparently anti-Semitism isn't part of the social justice. It's, stuff. it's not right. You know, apparently, it's not. apparently it's okay. You can be anti-racist to everybody except the Jews. And I see right. that's the hypocrisy that I call out. Yeah. And that's yeah. the that's the radicalism I'm talking about. Absolutely. It's uh, what did I put it? It's it's the other people. Yeah. Was was my term? Yeah. No, the, the other people. No, and them because because it's like, uh, it, it it applies here except when it's the other people. Like, right. okay, so it's it's for your convenience is what you're saying. Right. Okay. And it also shows ignorance. They don't know what the hell. Yeah. It's like the of flavor sure. Right. The flavor of the month. Oh, to this month, it's Palestine. What's going to be next month? Oh, let's move on. You know, exactly. I watched this great show and you would like it, Flint, because it's built around the country club called Red Oak on Amazon. And one of the main characters, she is like a flavor of the week with everything. And then her boyfriend calls her out and she's like, well, I just want to fit in. Uh, And it's and it really is that it's the. It's yeah, the, right? the, I just want to fit wanna in. Fit okay. In. What did they say over there? Good. I'll adopt those. I'm, you know, at 45, I'm really good at going. I have no effing opinion on, on a subject at all. I don't know what you're talking about. I haven't spent any time, not these topics we're discussing, but topics in general. Like, I don't care. I don't need to be a part of your discussion on this. Well, and at 68, we just don't give a shit. <laughs> I mean, we, right? We've got our opinion and that's what it is. No, I mean, that's a great point. It's like the whole thing to fit in. And and so this is, so there's the, the social justice movement has all these different boxes that you check of things that they support underneath it. One of them is decolonialization, uh, you know, anti-racism, which is fine, you know, um, uh, wage inequality, uh, capitalism, all those things. And harm reduction is one of those boxes too, just so you know. That's one of the boxes that's in there. So, um that's something that you just need to be aware of, man, because I, I don't think you and I are both necessarily opposed to harm reduction. I just think we're opposed to radical interpretations of harm reduction. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I, I put it in pretty simple terms, you know, short term harm reduction saves lives. Long term harm reduction keeps people trapped. That's a great way to look at it. But, you know, the harm, and then underneath the harm reduction, there's like little subsets like a 1A and a 1B of decriminalization and right. safe, safe supply and supervised consumption side and that's what people aren't seeing that's right in my opinion that's what people aren't seeing just so you know like that's one of the things on their list man and so you know it doesn't mean we have to stand up and and say down the harm reduction no one no one should be saying that because the reality is is if you're reducing harm it's probably better than nothing but where's the recovery where's the the hope of recovery where's the promise of recovery why has recovery been taken out of their language? When you go to the National Harm Reduction Coalition's website, why do they no longer talk about sobriety and right. abstinence and recovery? Like it's no longer part of their vocabulary. That's a huge mistake. And we need to make sure that they reinsert that or get out of the way. Yep. Yep. 
Yeah, Flint and I, our last episode, we did a one-on-one because we really wanted to break down uh, from dancesafe.org. Uh, we got one of the fentanyl test strip kits. Talk uh, about people with purple hair all over the place. I mean, well, hey, I, I got red hair, so I can't say anything, uh, you know. Uh, yeah, yes. hey, mine's silver, but it's natural, <laughs> right? <laughs> How can you be a wolf and a silver fox all at the same time? Uh, right? There's silver wolves out there, man. So absolutely, right. there are. That's right. I mean, we went through this thing that the, in the rhetoric, and it's like you gotta you gotta almost have a PhD to interpret a lot of it. But we went through all of it and their kit and everything else, and understanding and preventing overdose and all this. At no point in there does it say. And if you are worried that you may be an addict, here's some resources. Right. In any of this stuff, ever, yeah, all the stuff we get. Gives you a six-page six step on how to test your drugs. All right, oh, by, yeah. by, by the way, be, you know, like I said in the, in the episode, tell me one addict that's going to test an entire pill that they only have one pill, right? That ain't happening. But they, but it's again, it's, it's, it's a five, four-step process to try to test it. Right. And that's because that's not their job. That's what they'll tell you. <laughs> their job isn't recovery. Their job is to just show you how to test your drugs. Just like a supervised consumption site. Our job isn't to promote recovery. Our job is to help you use your drugs safely. Yeah. And they compartmentalize everything on purpose so that they don't have to talk about treatment and recovery as one of their contingencies to getting funding. I, I'm being honest. Like That's 100% exactly what's happening. Okay. So Sam Rivera, he runs the on-point safe consumption sites in New York City, the two that are operating in New York City right now illegally, but have been sanctioned by the city and the state. They're open right now, right? Mm -hmm. He said, I watched him do an interview uh, in person, and he said that, yeah, we we don't mention recovery or treatment to anybody when they come in and use drugs here. No judgment. We don't offer it. We don't talk to them about that. But when they ask us, we'll act. We'll pick up the phone. We'll call the detox van. We won't ever talk to them about treatment or recovery, ever. And I just thought that that's just fundamentally, to me, it's fundamentally wrong. Absolutely it is. That that you would run a site where people can come in and have a respite from the street, right? And use your drugs under observation, not medical observation, just observation. Um, And have someone standing by with an oxygen tank, right? And some and they won't ever talk to you about drug treatment unless that person says, you know what, man, I think today is the day. Then they'll be like, okay, great, let me call. But no one will sit there and say, hey, man, have you thought maybe, you know, this is the 36th time you've used our site and you've OD'd three times since you've been here. You think maybe you want to think about going to detox and treatment today? Nope, that conversation never happens and they admit it. So just understand, like, that's not their goal, and that's the issue that I have, is that recovery is no longer the goal of some of these more radicalized harm reduction folks. And they, they freely admit it now. They're not even hiding it anymore. So I think it's important that we challenge it and bring that message of recovery back to the forefront. In Absolutely. Our yeah. in, our, in our criminal justice for everything, it has to be the word recovery needs to be in all the stuff. You bet. Going forward. Couldn't yeah. agree more but, with that, Tom. Yeah, I mean, why, why can't you include in this anything like we highly recommend due to uh, 80% of all illicit drugs having fentanyl in it that you don't use. But in the event, you none of it. There's none of this. Anyways, you, you, you go on ESPN, you, you watch ESP watching football and they have the commercials to go bet. Yeah. On right. Games on your phone now. Even at the bottom says gambling problem. Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Correct. Yeah. Right. That's not on anything. 
They don't have any of that. I don't understand why the state doesn't step in because that's a state thing or a federal thing that they make them do that. Why? Why don't they do that? By by the way, and those are nonprofits. Those are nonprofits. What? What? Again, I don't even know if this is correct, but but you would think that there would be some sort of oversight for 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 nonprofits and not making those 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 statements, not making that suggestion. If you have if you're having you know, if you're thinking about recovery, here's a number. I don't I don't know. I I, I just I, I'm with you all the way on it. Tom. I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's too maybe it's too simple of a thing to ask for. Maybe. Yeah. I, I maybe I, yeah. it's just. But if they're getting con- if they're contracting with a city or getting their money from a city or a county to do business, to do that kind of work or from a hospital to do that kind of work that then gets money from the government for it, that should be a requirement. You bet. Yeah. You ready for treatment? Call this number. It can be something as simple as that. I'll take it. Baby steps, baby steps, baby steps. I'll take it. They have it on Budweiser commercials. Drink responsibly. Right. Yeah. How come on these things with these nonprofits, it's like enjoy your high instead. Right. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I want to end on the uh, the word safe. I have such a problem with it. And the parallel I made for Flint was I had a really great, uh, oh, what do they call it? Human behavior, sex ed teacher in high school. And he goes, yeah, you know, condoms, birth control, all this. And he goes, that way you, you know, understand you need to be responsible in having safer sex. There's no such thing as safe sex. I'm tired of the word safe drug use. There's no such thing. There okay. isn't. Not with alcohol, not with any other substance. There is nothing safe here. Right. If you take too many Advil, you get liver damage. Correct. I mean, so I, I mean, honestly, right? You right. take too much Alka-Seltzer, you can have heart attack. I mean, you have to, th- you know, there. So you know, drink. You drink too much coffee, you could have a heart attack. I mean, look at the warnings just on a pres- look at the warnings <laughs> just on a prescription bottle that you got from the pharmacy. They're sixteen pages, you know, with the words that you can't read. Okay, on 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 all the dangers, and if you this happens to you, here's what you got to do. Yeah, may right. cause blindness, may cause you to grow a tentacle. <laughs> you know, it's like right. Right. So, so. The argument then is for that for us to have the safer. They've changed the word now. They changed it from safe supply. Like in Canada, they give out hydromorphone now on the street to people to try to replace the heroin in Vancouver. Um, they call it instead of safe supply because of that very thing, Jason, they've changed it to safer supply. That's the term that they use now to try to get around that because they got called out by a bunch of doctors on that too, saying, actually, those aren't safe either. You know, dilated is not safe either. No, <laughs> none <laughs> of it. Is. No, it's not safe. So it, it, yeah. So it's just, they're playing word games and trying to yeah. change the meanings and moving the goalposts. And so it's very important for us, all of us in this space to stay vigilant yep. um, and watch for the changes. I, I probably do a little too much on here. I really am into it on social media, but someone needs to stand up to, to this madness. No. Yeah, Tom, and, and seriously, when, whenever there's any type of those, uh, um, you know, those, those conventions, those talks, wherever, wherever it is, and if we can be of assistance to you, at any point, please, please let us know, because I know what it's like going to Sacramento and not having bodies there, okay, that are in support of what we are doing. And if you need that support somewhere, our ass will show up to support you. We don't have to be neck deep involved, but we'd like to be, but, but we'll show show up because we have to, we have to have, we also have to show force here. I think there's, there's some part of that, um, that these people need, need to see the numbers of people that are are preaching what we're preaching yeah 
I think that's ultimately, I mean, I think it's extremely important for that. Yeah. If you just want a six foot two guy that looks good in a suit, stand behind you. Hey, you know how to get a hold of me. If if you want to go somewhere where you feel right at home, um, the last two years in a row, I've gone to Calgary in Canada. Mm. Every year they have something called the Recovery Capital Conference. And it's it's a two day conference, about 2000 people that basically think like we do. And it's what time of year is it in? It's in April. This coming right. next year in April in Calgary, so it's probably still kind of snowy in Calgary. But sure. it's a it's a, a two day event. It's about two thousand people, and they you know they they talk about recovery systems of care the whole time. Great. You, you get big time people that go up there and speak. Schellenberger spoke a couple of years ago. You got Dr. Keith Humphreys from Stanford. You get big people. They get big people to come up there and talk, and it might be worth the investment for you guys to go check it out. I've gone the Absolutely. last few years, and it's just cool because then you start building relationships with people in other cities. And you start finding out that you're not alone and it's not just a california thing you know they've got issues up in calgary alberta too yeah and, they do you know and and then you meet people from minnesota and then now you're now i've been to denver a couple of times this year because it grew out of that and now we're moving the needle in denver and so the idea is to keep going east right at least with my movement to keep going east yeah when you get that info just send it to us or we can check it out too but but uh, ab- absolutely yeah it's just worthy to check out. So then, you know, you have a, you have a place to go where you have friends also, right. you know, instead right. of always being like the minority in the room, like the dissident view in the room when you have all these people talking about harm reduction or whatever. So yeah, it feels kind of good. <laughs> Gives you hope. <laughs> you bet. Tom, people want to check you out, get a hold of you. And I say, don't stop uh, doing what you're doing on Twitter. I personally follow you from uh, myself from our pain page. We like, you know, we'll, share retweet whatever the re-x is that what it is now it's uh, x that's right yeah. post, repost on x yeah right. um right. what's the easiest way to get get you just on twitter so you can hit me up on twitter my handle's at at t wolf recovery uh you can also visit i have a web page now it's a basic web page where you can read where you can contact me it's a www.gooddrugpolicy.org uh, slash PAPR and the PAPR is for my nonprofit, the Pacific Alliance for Prevention and Recovery. Nice. All right. Perfect. Mr. Hand. Tom, as always, man, thank you. This is, this is good stuff. You're doing great stuff. Um, we're just going to keep fighting the battle, brother. Keep fighting. Keep fighting. You have a friend up here in San Francisco anytime. I'm right here. If you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, please call pain parents and addicts in need at 559 559- Five seven nine one five five one, or visit us online at painnonprofit.org. Follow us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Pain Nonprofit. And please subscribe to the Don't Hide the Scars podcast and share with others wherever you get podcasts and on YouTube. And if you would like to donate to Pain, parents and addicts in need. Please click the link in the description to make your tax-deductible donation today and help us save more lives gripped by addiction.